0: Hello and welcome back to the Orb Greatness podcast, episode 1.8, Back on the Road in Guatemala. I apologize for the long break between episodes. I don't really have an excuse, so let's just get back to it. We left off at the end of the motorcycle diaries and Che's famous trip through South America. This time we catch back up with Ernesto on the cusp of completing his medical degree and taking off for more adventure. We then are going to do a brief recap of Guatemalan history, as next time we will explore the coup that most point to the moment that the aspiring young idealist Ernesto Guevara was radicalized into the revolutionary Che Guevara. The person who wrote these notes died upon stepping once again onto Argentine soil. He who edits and polishes them, I am not I. At least I am not the same as I was before. That vagabonding through our America has changed me more than I thought. Those words are Che's own. He wrote them as he read back through his daily journals from his trip as a way to reflect on all that had happened. That reflection is what became known as Notas de Vieja, or, as it is known in English, the book, The Motorcycle Diaries. It perfectly encapsulates the thoughts of a young man finally coming to terms with the world around him. His parents, on the other hand, were not as excited about the burgeoning vocation of their eldest son. The Guevara family had hoped that the trip would cure Ernesto of his wanderlust and that he would finally buckle down, finish his medical degree, and open up a clinic in Buenos Aires. Ernesto would buckle down. He would finish his medical degree. But he went a slightly different direction with that last piece. When Chafe returned from his trip, he was ready to resume his schoolwork. At the time, a doctor's degree in Argentina was achieved after passing examinations in 30 subjects. Before he left, he had completed 16 of those 30 subjects, and his plan was to complete the final 14 in the upcoming school year. He would also continue working in Dr. Pisani's clinic for the duration of the school year. His first exams of the year occurred in November of 1952. He passed three exams in November, and then another 10 exams in December of 1952. That left him with one final exam, which would take place in April of 1953. During the interim period, Che dedicated as much time as possible to Dr. Pisani's clinic. He loved applying himself to real cases and working toward finding anecdotes in the laboratory. He also helped Dr. Pisani with writing the research papers that detailed their collective findings. Dr. Pisani saw a bright future in front of the future Dr. Guevara, and even included Che's name as a co-author on some of his published findings. As an example, Dr. Pisani submitted and had his work published in the research magazine Allergia, which detailed new work being completed on the subject of allergies. The paper was titled Sensibilization of Guinea Pigs to Pollens Through Injections of Orange Extract, and listed Che as one of the paper's co-authors. I was not able to find any information about how the paper was received, how the findings have held up over time, or even a copy of the paper for that matter but it's still an accomplishment to have a piece of research published in a scientific journal while still in school. It would have made quite the byline on Che's curriculum vitae. But with the way things turned out, I don't think Che ever had use for a CV. On April 11, 1953, Ernesto sat for his final exam. The first thing Che did after completing his exam is found a phone and called home. His father answered and Che proudly proclaimed, Dr. Ernesto Guevara de la Serna speaking, his father beamed, but the family's happiness was brief. With his last examination completed, Dr. Guevara immediately began planning his next trip. He had no intention of standing still or settling in for the long haul. This time Che would be taking off with his friend Carlos Ferrer, and they would venture forth to Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador, before ending up in Guatemala. Che wanted to visit the Incan ruins of Bolivia, and each wanted to conquer Machu Picchu. Colica states that the ultimate plan was to reach Venezuela, make some money, and then use that money to get to Europe. Che also envisioned bringing his mother with him to Europe so that she could see a specialist in Paris, as he feared her cancer may be returning. Bolivia and Machu Picchu would happen, but Venezuela and Europe would have to wait. Che's family tried to convince him to stay, and when he gave his notice to Dr. Pisani, the doctor attempted to persuade him not to leave. He offered Che a paying job, an apartment at the clinic, and a partnership in his continued allergy research. I know I would have been personally ecstatic to receive a job offer in my field right out of university, but Ernesto turned him down. He stated that he did not want to stagnate in Buenos Aires. We will find over Che's final 14 years of life that he was quite the rolling stone And barely stayed anywhere long enough to gather moss. Che waited and planned in the next couple months. In June, he obtained his physical doctor's degree and celebrated his 25th birthday. For his birthday, he asked strictly for money so that he could afford his travels. After asking every last relative for money, Che and Calico were ready to depart. They bought train tickets that would take them from Belgrano Station to Bolivia on July 7, 1953. At the train station, their families gathered to see them off and made a big scene of the young pair departing from the country. Che's mother is said to have teared up as the boys boarded the train and ran after it, waving her handkerchief at the departing train as they left the station. She feared that she would never see her baby boy ever again. The pair arrived in Bolivia and greatly enjoyed their time in La Paz. In his journal, Che had described La Paz as the Shanghai of the Americas. By that, he meant it was a rich gamut of adventures of all nationalities vegetate and flourish in the polychromatic and mestizo city. The travel journey would not receive the same treatment as his previous travel journey. He would never revisit it in the same way, and so he never received a sequel to Notas de Vieja. Though technically, this journal has been published as well. Guevara's widow, Aleda March, found the journal after Chase's death. She transcribed it and published it as Otra Vez in Cuba, and as Back on the Road in the English-speaking world. I would not personally recommend reading Otreviz. It is very dry reading and does not reveal the same deep thinking and personality changes as the Motorcycle Diaries does. Aleda claims that the published edition is largely unabridged and accurately reflects the actual journey written by Che himself. Though she does freely admit that she edited out any of the sexually suggestive sections of the journal, I personally question if other parts were also edited or changed, made to reflect Che in a more positive light. Also, in comparison, far less happened on this journey before Che got to Guatemala. In fact, we are going to largely fast forward through the trip. The main takeaway that I found was the way Che's vision for the Americas continued to develop. In much the same way as Simon Bolivar, Che saw the Americas as more tied together than the different countries and borders might suggest. It also reveals the growing realization that the only way to throw off the hegemonic powers of America and Europe would be to band together and force them out, so that each person in Latin America would gain the right of self-determination. The highlights of Osservas are smaller, but one line does give an idea of what she expected the trip to entail. This time, the name of the sidekick has changed. Now Alberto is Calica, but the journey is the same. Two dispersed wills extending themselves through America without knowing precisely what they seek or even which way is north. Calica, though, was not quite the spiritual companion that Alberto had been. Calica had loved La Paz because they had quickly become friends and ingrained themselves in the social community there. One important aside as we continue, while Che was in Bolivia, Fidel and Raul Castro were staging their attack on the Makada barracks. We will talk more about this attack later, but the important detail to note for now is that it occurred on July 26, 1953, and that date is the reason why the revolutionary movement that Che would join was known as the 26th of July Movement. It was a failed attack, but the Castro brothers survived it, and instead of being executed or jailed forever, they are exiled to Mexico, where they eventually meet and recruit a young doctor by the name of Ernesto Guevara. From La Paz. Calica and Che went to Cusco. Che loved the evocative mystery that was once the capital of the Incan Empire. Kalika, though, remained unimpressed. He complained of the stench and badgered Che until he agreed to leave. They continued their trek across the continent, stopped at Machu Picchu, and continued to Lima. Che was happy to visit Dr. Pesci again, but between some of Che's books being confiscated at the border for being quote-unquote red literature, and then being detained and interrogated by police after they were mistaken for a pair of kidnappers. Che worried that their continued presence and conversations would cause Dr. Pesci undue problems, so they kept moving and made for Guayaquil. Kalika and Che stayed at a pension with other Argentine expatriates in Guayaquil. The group formed a close bond in the weeks that followed. The two had arrived in Ecuador on September 28th and remained there for the next couple months. In that time, Che formed a close fraternal bond with the other Argentine pensioners. Of the pensioners, the most notable is Ricardo Rojo. Rojo is best known as Che's friend. He received that recognition because after Che's highly publicized death, Rojo decided to cash in on his acquaintance with the famous revolutionary by writing and publishing the book, My Friend Che, in 1968. The book gives an account of Che's life from someone who actually knew him. The problem, which is pretty common with memoirs about celebrities, is that it was a largely an exaggeration. He beefed up his relationship with Che and made it more than it was. But if you read it with a critical eye, you can pick out the important pieces and cross-reference them to other documents and notes that have since been published, to give flavor to the adventure and make it into a valuable source. Of course, at the time of publication, none of those other published documents existed, and Rojo was able to gain a bit of international fame for his association with the man known to the world as Che. At this stage of his life, Che was beginning to grow more political and increasingly to others by the way he perceived their political life. The main question he used to determine a person's political leaning centered around the United States. More and more, he found himself blaming the Americans for the problems around him. From the American tourists who had taken over Machu Picchu and stolen some of its beauty, to the foreign domination of the economy by American companies. He could see the hand that held Latin America down, and it belonged to the United States. While staying at the pension in Guayaquil, Che reached a point where he did not want to leave the fraternal atmosphere he had built with the others in the pension. He wanted to continue scrounging and sharing everything with the others. He felt more authentic, struggling to earn a dollar, while at the same time sharing anything he did earn with his newfound brothers. Even after Kalika had grown impatient and left, Che remained. Little did they know at the time, but Che and Kalika would never see each other again. Kalika made it to Venezuela and lived there for the next ten years before returning to Argentina. Che would take a very different path. He knew in his mind that he should head for Venezuela as well, but in his heart, he wanted to take a different path. Alberto had landed Che a job at the leprosarium, and had offered to pay the cost of the remaining passage between Ecuador and Venezuela. Che seriously considered it, but when Gualo, one of his fellows at the pension, invited him to come with him to Guatemala to see the unfolding leftist revolution in person, Che accepted immediately. That decision would forever alter his life and lead him down the path that would make him a world famous revolutionary. All that was needed to set the plan in motion were the funds to make the trip, and so he started selling everything that could fetch a dollar. In a letter to his mother, he boasted to her that he accepted a position as a 100% adventurer. In the same letter, he tells her that he sold the new suit she had given him as a farewell and graduation gift. Here is how Che describes it The pearl of your dreams died heroically in a pawn shop, and the same fate befell all the unnecessary things in my luggage. His father was none too pleased to hear that his son had sold the suit. Guevara Lynch was determined to have his son, the doctor, dressed respectably. He had another suit and blazer tailored and picked out some ties and socks to go with them before shipping them to his son. The letter of thanks from Che read as follows. What little value Argentine clothes have. For the whole lot, I got only $100. If that letter had been shocking to receive, then the one that followed to his Aunt Beatrice would have nailed the coffin shut on the idea that Che might one day return home for a normal life. The letter is dated December 10th, 1953, while Che was in Costa Rica, approximately two weeks before he arrived in Guatemala City. In it, he writes, along the way, I had the opportunity to pass through the dominions of the United Fruit, convincing me once again of just how terrible these capitalist octopuses are. I have sworn before a picture of the old and mourned comrade Stalin that I won't rest until I see these capitalist octopuses annihilated. In Guatemala, I will perfect myself and achieve what I need to be an authentic revolutionary." He will eventually fail to see the cactus octopuses annihilated, but he certainly would keep the promise not to rest. That letter certainly sets the stage for big things to happen in Guatemala. Before he follow Che to the City of Many Trees, let's take a brief tour of Guatemalan history. Guatemala was historically the core of the Mayan civilization until the Spanish conquered the area in the 16th century. It then became a piece of New Spain until its independence in 1821, as a part of the Federal Republic of Central America, and until that dissolved in 1841, which made way for the modern Guatemala. Whole podcasts could be made to cover these time periods and the pieces that followed. But while interesting, those pieces don't really provide us with the context we need to tell our story. Instead, we are going to pick up our tale at the onset of the Great Depression in 1929. But first, what do you know of Guatemala as it is today? If you asked a travel agency, then they might describe it as the country of eternal spring. It is known for its amazing weather, exquisite beaches, and the beautiful Lake Atitlan. Many would even say that Tikal, the ancient Maya citadel, which now stands as one of the most impressive ruins in the world, is on par with places like the Valley of the Kings in Egypt or Machu Picchu in Peru. The other thing Guatemala is known for is its high crime rate. Crimes that sometimes include violence towards tourists. According to Business Insider, Guatemala sits at number 25 on the list of the highest murder rate per capita of any city in the world. Latin America actually had 41 of the top 50 cities on that list, which underlines just how dangerous the area can be. This is partially caused by the endemic poverty of Guatemala, The country is among the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. Measuring by gross domestic product per capita, Guatemala is the sixth poorest country in Latin America and the Caribbean. And, if you only include North American countries, it is the fourth poorest country. However, the crime rate and the economy have both gone considerably better since the Guatemalan Civil War ended on December 29, 1996, after more than 30 years of infighting. The Civil War is generally dated as beginning in November of 1960, but there are certainly arguments that can be made that it dates even further back to the 1954 coup that we will be discussing next time. We will not be exploring the Guatemalan Civil War fully, but it will periodically seep into our larger story, such as with Fidel Castro's communications with the MR-13 and with Guatemala's role in the Bay of pigs' evasion, which occurred in 1961. But those are stories for another time. So without further ado, let us rewind to 1929 and the onset of the Great Depression. The Great Depression usually has an origin date of September 4th, 1929, but the big splashy date for when it became a worldwide phenomenon was Black Tuesday, which occurred on October 29th, 1929, and is marked by the massive stock market crash. Between 1929 and 1932, Worldwide GDP fell by an estimated 15%. To put that in perspective, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 saw worldwide GDP fall by only 1%. You likely know the broad strokes for how the world at large dealt with and lived through the Great Depression. But how did it affect those specifically in Guatemala? The president of Guatemala at the time was a man named Lazaro Chason. He had become interim president after the death of his predecessor in 1926, but held elections that same year that made him the full-fledged president. The country had been facing an economic and freedom of the presses crisis under his predecessor, where President Chason ended martial law and lifted the ban on private presses. He had then, somewhat ironically, set out on a campaign to stabilize the currency of Guatemala, and before the Great Depression hit, had started to see success of that mission. But then the stock market crashed in New York, and the ripple effect traveled throughout the world, and the economy tanked once again. By December 1930, the Guatemalan government had returned to being effectively bankrupt. President Chasan suffered a stroke and was forced to resign due to failing health. He would eventually die just a few months later in April of 1931. Chasan's immediate successor resigned without taking the job. The next man out was ousted in a coup. The person who assumed control after the coup was dismissed after the United States made their disapproval known which led to a third man becoming president in the three weeks that immediately followed Chasan's resignation. I won't trouble you with any of their names, as none of them will feature in the story again. The interim president called for immediate elections to determine who the new president would be. Jorge Ubico would run for election unopposed after receiving the support of both the liberal and progressive political parties. He won the election and was sworn in as the 21st president of Guatemala on February 21, 1931. He would remain president until his resignation on July 1, 1944. President Ubico had initially run for president in 1926 and been defeated by Chesan. Ubico had left the political scene in 1926 for his farm. At first, Chesan had been well supported, but after the economy went into a nosedive, the wealthy and landed elite lost faith in Chesan and pined for a different, stronger leader. They saw that leader as the man who had first earned his reputation by rising through the ranks of the Guatemalan army, where he had, at 28 years of age, received his promotion to colonel. He parlayed his military position into a political appointment and became governor of Alta Verapaz a year later in 1907. He continued his ascent to brigadier general and in 1922 became the Minister of War, a post he served in until his defeat in the election for president in 1926. Jorge Ubico was seen as the ideal man to lead Guatemala out of the Great Depression. Not because, as would be the case with Franklin D. Roosevelt, he was a champion of the little people and would bring about a revolution in the rights of workers. Quite the contrary, in fact. Jorge Ubico was chosen by the wealthy and landed elite because they knew he would be the best man to protect their interests. President Ubico would pass labor and vacancy laws which required the poor and indigenous citizens of Guatemala to work an assigned number of hours on certain plantations. The laws had the goal of maintaining an equal distribution of workers amongst landowners. Any poor laborer who did not own land was forced to work a minimum of 100 days hard labor every year. Some of those days were spent on plantations, but he used the laws to force indigenous workers to build roads and other civil projects, which was great for the budget as he did not pay them. This allowed him to balance the budget and post a surplus. He then established a decree 1816 which essentially made it legal to murder any indigenous farmer who refused to comply with the new laws. The law gave total immunity to landowners who were protecting their properties and started the process of strengthening the police force. Part of the strengthening of the police force included encouraging officers to shoot to kill and permission to imprison anyone suspected of breaking the new labor laws. President Yubico was also very determined to grow and develop the relationship with the United States. He wanted to be the U.S.'s closest ally in all of the Caribbean, and in turn used them to protect his government from the communist threat from Mexico and the threat within his own country. In a bid to impress the Americans, he granted the United Fruit Company 490,000 acres of public land in exchange for building a port. When the United Fruit Company squashed on the deal of building the port, Yubico chose to waive the requirement. The company controlled more land than any other group or individual and continued to expand by displacing farmers and then churning their land into banana plantations. Yubico's government did nothing to stop or forestall it. The Unfairs Law and the growing wealth disparity bred discontent amongst the poor majority. President Ubico responded to complaints by turning the government more authoritative and militarily inclined. Soon every provincial governor was a general in the military and even post offices and schools became more militarized. As World War II initially broke out, President Yubico declared the country's neutrality. But in December of 1941, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he declared war on Japan and then three days later on Germany and Italy. He suppressed Nazi propaganda and arrested citizens who had German ancestry. He further allowed the United States to establish an air force base in the country to protect the Panama Canal. Personality-wise, Jorge Ubico thought of himself as Napoleon-like. He often compared himself to Napoleon, told people that he looked like Napoleon, and wore his military uniform everywhere. He spread the self-styled nickname of the Napoleon of Central America. However, I don't think Napoleon would have been all that impressed by Ubico, who, despite his claims being like Napoleon, did not conquer any new territory, did not win any wars, and was, in many ways, manipulated by the United Fruit Company. In the United States to do their bidding, which is something that the real Napoleon would never have allowed. Everything came to a head for Yubico in 1944. Growing discontentment had forced Yubico to crack down even harder on the populace. On June 22nd, 1944, he finally passed a decree which suspended freedom of speech and the press. Rather than quelling the anti-Yubico crowd, he further enraged them. A general strike and popular revolt forced Yubico to resign On July 1, 1944. Initially, he stayed in contact with the new leaders of the country and his policies continued until the new leaders were swept out of power in another coup at which time Yubico fled the country. He eventually ended up in the United States and would die in exile in New Orleans on June 14, 1946. Somewhat appropriately, the little Napoleon died in a city that had been sold to the United States by the real Napoleon. The coup would bring to power a leftist political group. The group will remain in power for the next decade and will be the focal point of what is commonly known as the Guatemalan Revolution, which takes place from 1944 to 1954. That decade is sometimes known as the Ten Years of Spring. It is characterized by dramatic social, economic, and political change. It is this leftist revolution that has our man Che so excited to visit the country of Guatemala in December 1953 little suspecting that he would get to witness firsthand the end of that revolution. For the remainder of this episode, we will be discussing the first nine years of the revolution and setting the stage for the CIA-led coup that would end it. The military and revolutionary junta briefly held power from October 19, 1944 to March 15, 1945, in which time the revolutionary government consolidated their power and held what is considered the first fair and open democratic election in Guatemala's history. This brought to power the 24th president of Guatemala, Juan Aravelo. President Aravelo took power and sought to establish a liberal social democracy in Guatemala. He helped write a new constitution and rolled back many of the more aggressive laws which had been passed by Ubico. He modeled many of his social and economic reforms on the United States President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. He wanted to empower the poor and give rights to disenfranchised workers. He has often been described as a spiritual socialist, but that did not mean that he was at all communist. In fact, he refused the request to legalize the Communist Party of Guatemala, banned communist-leaning newspapers, shut down a Marxist academy, and exiled several prominent Communist Party members. His goal was to empower workers and improve the lives of the historically neglected people but he aimed to keep democracy and capitalism as the central tenets of the new government. He experienced a good deal of success, but his policies did anger some in the military and many of the landed elites who were forced to pay their workers a higher minimum wage and actually have to pay their taxes. It is estimated that he survived upwards of 25 coup attempts during his six years as president of Guatemala. In November 1950, Guatemala held its election to select the successor of President aravelo Jacobo Arbenz won the election handedly with over 60% of the vote, in a field of 10 different candidates. Arbenz had promised to continue and expand the reforms begun under President Arvelo. His main campaign promise was the institution of agrarian land reform, which won him popular support amongst the labor unions and both major political parties. If I have learned anything about studying history since 1848, is that if you say the term agrarian land reform five times fast, you are immediately turned into a communist. Which is of course why the United States government looked upon the election of Jacobo Arbenz as a very bad sign. On March 15, 1951, Jacobo Arbenz was inaugurated as the 25th president of Guatemala. In his inaugural address, he promised the gathered people that he would turn Guatemala into a modern capitalist state. He was determined to end foreign dependency and put a stop to foreign corporations interfering with the political life of Guatemala. This pronouncement excited his supporters, who in turn expected him to keep his campaign promises and would continually pressure him to continue and expand on the reforms of President Arbelo. President Arbenz got to work by meeting with the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development and laid out his plans to modernize Guatemala's infrastructure without foreign aid so that Guatemalans would be beholden to no one once they became a totally self-sufficient and growing economy. It has been hotly debated whether or not Arbenz actually was a communist or not. The United Fruit Company and many of the wealthy elite claimed that he was, and the United Fruit Company would use its influence to convince the United States government that he was. But historians writing after the fact are less sure. Everyone can admit that Arbenz was leftward-leaning, but most stopped short of branding him a full-bore communist and instead generally labeled him as a democratic socialist, though I'm not positive that that is completely accurate either. His land reform policy, which I will detail more fully in a moment, was more about the redistribution of property rather than social ownership. He was not nationalizing lands for the purpose of the state owning the property, but rather as a way to give the formerly landless indigenous population dignity any means of self-determination. It was a way of enriching more people and then getting those people to buy into the state so that as a whole they could become self-sufficient. Another way of looking at it is that he was busting a monopoly in order to allow small businesses the chance to thrive. When he took office, 2% of the population owned 70% of the land and a huge portion of that land was owned by a corporation that was not even of Guatemalan origins that paid little to no taxes and that paid its workers the lowest possible wage. His land reform would distribute land to approximately 500,000 previously landless people, which accounted for approximately one-sixth of the population of Guatemala. The land reform bill also did not leave the former landowners high and dry either. It compensated those that lost land to the program, of which Arbenz himself was included. It also only targeted uncultivated land. Jacobo Arbenz, after his exile, would continue to claim that he was not a communist while he was president of Guatemala, and that he was instead just working in the best interests of the people of Guatemala. However, in 1957, he did officially join the Communist Party of Uruguay, where he was living in exile, and after Castro comes to power in Cuba, he will live in Havana for some time. He insists, though, that he had only been leftward-leaning prior to his ousting and that the actions of the CIA further radicalized him and influenced his shift to a party that was anti-American. Regardless of whether or not Arbenz was a communist and whether or not he was advancing a communist agenda, it cannot be argued that the communist movement did see a growth in power during the three years that Arbenz was in power. He had reversed the decision of President Arvelo and decided to make the Guatemalan Party of Labor, which was the name of the Communist Party in Guatemala, a legal political party, and some of its members did gain seats in the legislature. Some were appointed to low-level government positions, and while the overall number of communists in Guatemala remained low, the ideology certainly grew to its strongest point in the history of Guatemala. So it is not like the Americans' fear of a North American country falling into the hands of the communists were entirely unfounded or merely simple propaganda. Whether or not you think a country falling to communism is a bad thing, is another discussion in and of itself. Decree 900, which was the formal name of the Agrarian Land Reform Bill, was officially passed on June 17, 1952. The law decreed that uncultivated land of estates that were larger than 674 acres, and that land that was less than two-thirds cultivated for estates between 224 and 674 acres, would be redistributed to families who currently owned no land. In exchange for any land lost, the government issued government bonds that equaled the amount the land was specified to have been worth on the landowner's 1952 taxes. As such, it targeted only land that was largely unused and gave it only to people who needed and would use it. By 1954, 1.4 million acres had been reappropriated and the production of corn, coffee, and bananas all increased from 1953 to 1954. Decree 900 also specifically abolished slavery, unpaid labor, work as payment for rent, and the relocation of indigenous workers. The goal of Decree 900, beyond the ones previously stated, was to bring Guatemala's economy from the backward quasi-feudalism system that had developed since the Spanish conquest began in 1519 and transform the economy into a strong and modern capitalist economy, by distributing capital and creating infrastructure to increase production. In conjunction with the Agrarian Land Reform Law, the National Agrarian Bank was established, which provided those who received the land with a small financial credit so that they could begin cultivating the land immediately. One thing that speaks to the immediate success of the program is the high repayment rate that the loans enjoyed. Of the $3,371,185 lent between March and November 1953, $3,049,092 had been repaid by June 1954. That repayment level is absolutely unheard of in financial circles. It is quite the historical what if for what would have happened if the program had been allowed to continue. But by June 27, 1954, President Arbenz was no longer in power, and his successor quickly abolished the law. So, just how far-reaching was the agrarian land reform law? Well, as I mentioned, approximately one-sixth of the population of Guatemala received land as a direct result of the law. But how many lost land? In June 1952, when Decree 900 was passed, there were nearly 350,000 private land holdings in all of Guatemala. By the time that the program ended, only 1,710 of those holdings were affected by the expropriation. That is less than one half of 1% of all land holdings in the country. And one of those 1,710 holdings belonged to President Arbenz. One belonged to the Foreign Minister, and one belonged to the Minister of Agriculture. So the government officials who were putting this law into place were not just pointing the finger, but they were also walking the walk and taking the consequences in hand. Now don't get me wrong, it wasn't a perfect law, and there were some conflicts that occurred because of the law and some violence did occur as well. Due to the speed at which the law was enacted, there were some arbitrary land seizures that may not have been correct. But these were not the sticking points that set the law up for failure. It was, of course, the showdown against the United Fruit Company. In 1953, President Arbenz announced that the government would be expropriating 234,000 acres of uncultivated land from the United Fruit Company. At the time the United Fruit Company owned approximately five hundred and fifty thousand acres of land in Guatemala. It should of course be remembered that the Guatemalan government had given the United Fruit Company four hundred and ninety thousand acres of land under President Ubico for the promise to build a port, a promise that the United Fruit Company did not keep. At the time, of the five hundred and fifty thousand acres that the company owned, only fifteen percent of the land was being cultivated, which is why such a large percentage of was to be redistributed. Even so, it is perfectly reasonable to expect any company that is losing 42% of its arable land to be upset. However, they were compensated $627,572, which was the exact amount that the United Fruit Company had claimed the land was worth on its 1952 taxes. After complaining and lobbying to the United States government, the United States Department of States claimed that the land taken was actually worth $15,854,849. The discrepancy on the tax forms, though, was never explained. The Guatemalan government, however, was resolute in their convictions to continue with the land reform, and thus began the United Fruit Company's concerted effort to see the government overthrown. It should be noted that in the year 1950, the United Fruit Company posted an annual profit of $65 U.S. million, which was more than double the annual revenue of the Guatemalan government. So the stakes were very high for the company, who saw its future threatened by the revolutionary government. They hired a public relations expert to trash the reputation of the Guatemalan government to the U.S. Congress and the public at large. They further used their connections to pressure the United States government to act on their behalf. The main tools of the company's tool belt was to paint everything the revolutionary government did, and everyone in it, as a communist, any threat to the American way of life. This was directly in the middle of the Second Red Scare, which occurred from 1947 to 1957, and the anti-Guatemalan propaganda began right in the middle of the Korean War and only heightened after it ended in July 1953. The last thing anyone wanted to see was a communist foothold in the Western Hemisphere. Of course, the principal actors seemed to be more motivated by money than by a nationalist pride or fear of the Red communists. The United States Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, had previously been a lawyer for the United Fruit Company, and even though he had entered the public sector, he remained on their payroll. His brother, Alan Dulles, who was the director of the CIA, also sat on the United Fruit Company's board of directors. It was Secretary Dulles who convinced President Eisenhower of the grave threat posed by the Guatemalan Revolutionary government, and it was Alan Dulles's CIA who led the coup that would see President Arbenz deposed. Overall, the United Fruit Company would spend over half a million dollars convincing lawmakers and the public at large that President Arbenz not only deserved to be overthrown, but that for the good of the American public, needed to be overthrown. And that half million dollars is only the money that we know about. That is where we will leave the narrative this time the Guatemalan government on the precipice, and an unknowing Ernesto Guevara on his way to witness what comes next firsthand. As the second half of the episode was really just scene-setting and we veered away from our main subject, I wanted to end with something a little more personal to Che. As I have mentioned in the past, Che's favorite poet was the Chilean Pablo Neruda. In 1950, Pablo Neruda published his tenth book of poems called Canto General. In it, he has one poem that describes the injustices faced in the so-called Banana Republics of Central and South America. The poem is titled The United Fruit Company, and I will be ending this episode by reading it in full. This will give us a nice primary source that describes the feelings of those who actually lived in the world that we are discussing. Pablo Neruda, La United Fruit Co., from Canto General, 1950. When the trumpet sounded, everything was prepared on earth, and Jehovah gave the world to Coca-Cola Inc., Anaconda, Ford Motors, and other corporations. The United Fruit Company reserved for itself the most juicy piece, the central coast of my world, the delicate waste of America. It rebaptized these countries, banana republics, and over the sleeping dead, over the unquiet heroes who won greatness, liberty, and banners, It established an opera buffa. It abolished free will, gave out imperial crowns, encouraged envy, attracted the dictatorship of flies. Trujillo flies, Tacho's flies, Correas flies, Martinez flies, Correas flies, Martinez flies, flies, Ubico flies, flies sticky with submissive blood and marmalade, drunken flies that buzz over the tombs of the people, circus flies, wise flies, expert at tyranny. With the bloodthirsty flies came the fruit company, amassed coffee and fruit in ships which would put to sea like overloaded trays with the treasures from our sunken lands. Meanwhile the Indians fall into the sugared depths of the harbors and buried in the morning mists. A corpse rolls, a thing without a name, a discarded number, a bunch of rotten fruit thrown on the garbage heap. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Aura of Greatness podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope to continue bringing you new episodes on a more regular basis. You can follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Aura of Greatness podcast, and you can reach me by sending me an email at Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, please remember to hit that subscribe link on your favorite podcast app, whether that be Acast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or what have you so that you do not miss any future episodes. Once again, thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.8, Back on the Road in Guatemala.